You're listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, my name is Octavio Fernandez Mostajo. My name's Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Today, we had a conversation with Julie and Matt Canless, who are Regent grads, both of them, and a number of years ago moved to Scotland for both of them to do some doctoral studies. Now, in the end, Julie completed her doctoral program there, and Matt took up a position working in the Church of Scotland as a parish pastor while being a stay-at-home dad for part of that time. That's when all changed. That's when it all changed. Exactly. <laughs> dun, so, dun, dun. <laughs> so they're, um, they've then created, at, so they, yeah, their lives changed. This kind of idea of being in a small town shaped how they thought about themselves, how they thought about God, how they thought about ministry. Um, and they uh, made a film called Godspeed which gets referred to, uh, and then they've moved back to a place in the States called Wenatchee. Wenatchee. And uh, they're working, uh, he's a pastor of a church there, and Julie is teaching a little bit at a university as well as being at home with their kids. Julie's also written a book entitled Theology of the Ordinary, which also brings out some of these ideas of kind of slowing down and living life in an ordinary way and seeing theology play out in that place. So they released that documentary called Godspeed, which is very countercultural. It's all about slowing down to catch up with God. Mm. So so after you've done with this podcast, you got to go watch the documentary. It's going to blow your mind mm-hmm. and it's going to challenge a, a bunch of Stuff you've just been saying yes to that are just part of culture that you should say like, wait a moment, wait a moment, this mm. is just going too fast, and I'm not actually thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, it's just great. We had a great conversation with with the canalists. Enjoy our conversation, Julian Matt. Welcome to the Regent Podcast. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Nice. It's good to have you. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about your lives, basically on our podcast. Um, and so interested to hear maybe a little bit about your move to Scotland and kind of then how that shaped your understanding of yourselves as people, how that shaped your ministry, how that shaped your family life. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about your move from the US to Scotland and how that all came about and how what sorts of things started to change. Well, it started because we were at Regent wondering what to do next um, the simple story is we got accepted to St. Andrews to do some more graduate studies. Eugene Peterson had said, if you can be abroad for a season mm-hmm. to relearn some things that being overseas can teach you. So not knowing we were pregnant, we went, Oh, um, at least we accepted <laughs> and then found out we were pregnant. Had that been the reverse, we might not have tried. Mm. Um, but then we moved out, began to study with now our newborn son. And it all quickly almost came to naught because we tried to do too much, both being students, being new parents, being in a new culture. Um, those first couple of years were hard. Mm. We, we often have said, we only saw this after the PhD, that we were mortgaging off a little bit of our marriage every year to get the PhD. And that's mm-hmm. the grim reality of at least what happened to us. Um, just because it's very difficult and very isolating. And you're also in a new culture, no family support. 
Mm. amazing Regent presence. I mean, Regent friends kept us alive. Mm. And um, yeah, yeah, we we had a very rich time there, but we got to the other side. And after five years of being in the PhD program, we were exhausted. And in Mm -hmm. fact, after a year, um, Matt and I realized we will not be married by the end of this. Um, So Matt very graciously said, you know what? I'm sick of academics. I've trained to be a pastor. Why don't I try and put my skills to use? I'll take care of Chapman. I happened to be pregnant again at the time with baby Mm. number two. He said, you just like write like the wind. (laughs) (laughs) I I did my best. Um, And he was a stay at home dad for a year. And it was in that year of him pushing Chapman all around St. Andrews and visiting me at my little study hole that he saw an ad. Um, I don't know where he saw it. I remember that it was posted on a wall. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Let's go with that. Let's yeah, go with go that. <laughs> and then, yeah, I took a job at the Church of Scotland as a parish assistant and began to work as a pastor in a parish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about um, that experience for you moving into, yeah, working in a parish in Scotland. Before that, I do have a question. So you, your vision was to be a pastor, right? So I've heard, I've even heard professors at Regent tell some, not all of them, but I heard especially one professor tell us, like, if you want to be a professor, then and only then go for a doctorate. Because it doesn't make sense just to go through all that, because of what you, you were saying, it's, it's really difficult on, on, on families, on people, just to go through a doctorate and then, and then just to just have it and not, not work on it really. So what, what made you decide for a doctorate if you wanted to be a pastor in the first great, place? Great, great question. And I would never recommend a PhD to anybody. <laughs> um, you learned. <laughs> yeah. I did want to be a pastor, um, but I think it was more practical in that I couldn't just move to Scotland and become a pastor. Visa places don't make that possible. Oh, it okay. sounded fun to begin a PhD with Julie abroad. That sounded romantic and exciting. <laughs> with a small, with a newborn child, yeah. <laughs> that you didn't know of, though. <laughs> Correct. So I think maybe in some sense, um, to your point, I was not being wise in pursuing a PhD. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to reiterate again that don't get one unless you really want to be a professor. And even then, um, because it is so hard to become a professor, it's just not a path that I would recommend for almost anybody. Mm. Oof. Uh, did you finish your doctorate? No, I just no. Settled, okay. I settled with a master's degree. and. It was actually more than a year at stay at home. It was two years stay at home, a PhD in nappies and children. Mm-hmm. Nice. Totally. That's me right now. <laughs> to reiterate what Matt is saying, um, we get a lot of emails from people saying, oh, we heard that you went from Regent and you did the PhD thing and tell us what it's like. And I almost always just try and put up, throw up every roadblock I can. Because, right. And, and not... I think it's just because we've seen so many people try and then their marriage crumbles, their finances Uh are liquidated, and even the ones who actually make it come home and can't get jobs. So that's part of it. But also Mm. I think when you're at a seminary and you're, I mean, it's like, it's 
it's a high drug to be talking with people every day about deep ideas. And it's so exciting. And to be honest, pastoral work is really not that exciting. It doesn't feel like that. I mean, it's much more a long obedience in the same direction. So I think Mm -hmm. that for people who love seminary, um, the pastoral call begins to be maybe um, slightly, it just starts to feel like, well, maybe I want to keep going. Maybe I should get a PhD first before I become a pastor. I Uh just think there's something about being, it's kind of like when kids who've been saved through young life want to go on and become, you know, young life directors. It's like when you're at seminary, you want to just keep going with this amazing thing, which is learning, learning. And, um, and then you find yourself in this place where relationally you're spent and Uh this isn't everyone's story, but I would say that it's more common than you Mm. would think. So I agree with your professor. I mean, we, we sat down and talked with Eugene at the time because he was just a close friend. And, and I said to him, I said, I'm not, I don't consider myself an academic. Like why I've been invited to go do this PhD. Should I do it? And he Uh said, Julie, you're one of the few people I would say you should absolutely do it. Oh, really? And then he said, go in and get the hell out of there as fast as you can. <laughs> because yes. he, he knows that it's a corrosive, it can be a corrosive place. It can be incredibly isolating. And it can, I, I found that I had to unlearn a lot of things post PhD. The best thing that ever happened to me was having to be a Sunday school teacher for 10 years uh-huh. to learn mm-hmm. how to talk again, how to relate again, how to get out of the ontology world and back into m- connecting ideas with people's lives. So mm-hmm. that was a hidden blessing of going back to being a stay-at-home mom after the PhD. Mm-hmm. So, What kept you in it? Knowing all of that was so challenging. Not good question. What Claire. kept? Thank you, Octavia. Good question. Yeah. Um, I, because like, I'm the kind of person that once I have a goal, it's really clear. <laughs> like, okay, I don't even think twice. I'm not very good at stopping and saying, well, let's just rethink this. Um, so part of it's maybe my um, just – Ask the, the, you can tell my smile on his face. Matt's got something to say about that. <laughs> yeah, neuroses, addiction. <laughs> Sin. I'm not sure what the best term. Um, but there is redemption. And, yeah, always. And, and Julie's a good student. And she was writing a wonderful PhD. And so all those things mixed together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Okay, we can go back to your question now. Um, I was going to say, tell us a little bit about living in a in a small town in Scotland and how that shaped, um, you can sort of take it however you want, how that shaped you as individuals, how that shaped your family, how that shaped your ministry uh, as a, as a parish, in, in a parish. Yeah, what was that like living in a small town? And what is a parish? <laughs> a parish is a piece of land that's got physical boundaries. I think of Psalm 16, 6, the boundaries have fallen for me in pleasant places. Mm-hmm. A parish isn't always pleasant, but it is pleasant and it's limited. You got to work here. You got to know these people. It was wonderfully limiting of my ambitions as far as what I thought I could do for the world. No, just be in this place. So that's the gift of the parish. And living in one in St. Andrews was lovely because we walked everywhere. We didn't own a car. That began to connect us to land, people, God in earthy ways. But then when we moved up to Maflick and got a car, uh, we had the only blue Volkswagen van in our village, which meant if I ever drive and Uh speed, 
or do something unchristian <laughs> in a gesture to somebody. The American did it. <laughs> and that was the gift of not being anonymous, having everything you know be known by everybody, mm. which was a whole different reality to what often happens today, either because of digital life or big places. So it was just a, a magnifying glass existence, which at first is scary, but then it's like, well, they see everything and I'm free to be who I am and to have bad things changed in me because I'm accountable. Mm. So it, it was it was good both ways. Mm. Okay, because I want to ask you as a family as well, there's actually a famous novel in Spanish. Of, it's called uh, Pueblo Chico in Infierno Grande. That's, that means small town, big hell, which is, which is basically in, in smaller, people want to, you know, escape from small towns before because because of that. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody is doing. Everybody's in everybody's case. So you'll be like, I, I want to get out of there. P please get me somewhere big where I can just, you know, not be known and no, and everybody's not on my case, doesn't know what I'm doing. So, so people, at least I was kind of grew like that. You kind of want to escape those places. A small town. Yeah. Mm. Well, remember this part of our story. When I was marrying Julie in our smallish town, a suburb of Seattle, my dad came to me and said, you know, Matt, we know you. Julie's family knows you because we grew up on the same street in Bellevue oh. and our parents are best friends. Oh, oh, come on. So beautiful. We had a small village existence in our right. neighborhood. And my dad said, you know, Matt, like the book you're referencing, you need to leave town. You mm -hmm. need to go do something different which became our move to Vancouver, which was really healthy to get outside of what we grew up in. Mm. It then became Scotland also, which maybe wasn't necessary, but we did have a time of being away. But then what the film doesn't capture is at age 40, we woke up in Netflix saying, adventure done. Um, <laughs> we need to go home to our hell on earth That is to say, the place we grew up, uh, which is uh, also heaven, because now we miss these relationships. We've grown in ways to have some differentiation. We want to return to family and friends and culture that we knew. And so I don't know how the book ends, but I hope it goes from yeah, this little village that's hell. You go away and get greener grass, kind of, but uh -huh, then realize you become really mature. You got to come home and be free in the place that was once a prison in some way. Uh -huh. So... Keep that context in mind, not just our Vancouver to Scotland move. We're now mm. back in Washington mm. State, our home, and it is a greater freedom than even the peak in the film where I look out to the congregation and say, I am free. And that was true because they were such good people. But you can only be known in the deepest ways in your small village mm. with the original family and friends. And I think we've even graduated from this ideal in Scotland to being mm. home again. Mm. That's, mm. that's the completed pilgrimage. Yeah. Julie, have you got any, was it, was it freeing for you? Was it, did you, was your experience of that similar or were you sort of tracking at the same, in the same weight? I was tracking on a different level because as, as we were moving to this little village and Matt was the minister, you know, I mean, he stepped into this role that is iconic and we didn't even realize that people identified Matt as their minister, even if they didn't go to church, even if they considered themselves atheists, they saw him as their minister. 
Mm. And so, you know, Matt was immediately like part of the structure of the way our village ran. Uh, But for me, I was leaving PhD world and finding such rest and respite in just being home with kids. And I think my whole book, Theology of the Ordinary, started coming out of how do I, how do I take all this Trinitarian theology I've been steeped in for five years? And now how do I begin to live it? So for me, it was a, it was a different move. Uh, even as we, even, even as I was known by everybody in the village, for me, it was tremendously, uh, it felt like moving to uh, a cocoon where I was growing and my theology was incubating and, um, and my children were training me and teaching me very deep things and untraining me from other things in, in mm. a wonderful way. Um, so I would, for me, it was slightly different than that. Um, but there was all, there was the deep sense of being known. And yet as being Americans, we were never, we always were the foreigners and we were mm. always seen as the, as the outsiders, which didn't bother us. Um, it allowed us to go where many Scottish people feared to tread, but because we had this label of being American, yeah. you know, we were, we were allowed yeah, to do anything. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so there was something refreshing and wonderful about that. Um, so it was a little bit of an, of an idyllic existence, raising kids, walking to school, walking to the church. Um, but at, after a certain point, we both for our inner selves felt that we, there's a different challenge from being known on our own turf. We've learned all that we can learn from this incredible parish existence. We felt like a lot of our ambitions had been hacked off of us. It, the, the ego ambitions I'm talking about, not mm-hmm. the gospel ambitions, but mm-hmm. the ego ambitions. And we'd learned, we'd learned what we really wanted ministry to be. And we'd learned the depths of relational ministry there. And then we realized it's time to come home and begin being in relationship with our family, with people who know us and can call us, you know, onto the carpet for things. I've been called on the carpet this week for things. By <laughs> <my family>. um, <laughs> and, uh, and so coming home for us was a deeper engagement with being known. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you were in a small town and for what I know, you were there for 13 years, right? Am I right? We were in Scotland for 13 years, but that was between a couple of villages. Okay, but I think some parents want to, you know, want their kids to experience the world and experience technology and experience, uh, I don't know, m- m- many other sources of knowledge. And people sometimes feel the pressure of getting their kids out of small small villages so they can know more of the world but you were especially in the first years you know when they're when they're like approaching teens and intense and nice when they're you know like like little sponges they suck everything and they, they're learning so much but then there you are in a small town did you feel that pressure of taking your kids out of there so they can no <laughs> no <laughs> It's like, nope, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm happy with. Oh, yeah. We knew they were having a, just a quantitatively different education. I mean, literally their best friends were 80 and they would mm-hmm. walk down the street to these 80 year olds houses where they would oh. have, you know, Latin lessons or sewing lessons or, yeah. you know, help keep the sheep. You know, we're going to move our sheep from this field to this field. Can you help us keep the sheep out of Mrs you know, Hodge's garden. So we, we had a, it was just a different education and we did know that it was going to be shocking when they got back to America. Yeah. And it, and it was, uh, but it wasn't negative. I think they had some, they had a sense of self from being in this village where they were 
part of a bigger community. I mean, my daughter's just writing her college essay right now on what it was like to go from a village of three to 400 to a high school of 2,400. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, that was, she talked about how surprising it was to move to America where the biggest thing was to find yourself and, and you, you could only find yourself by rejecting your community and your parents. That that's what she found in American high school, which was Uh really different from Scotland where no, it was in this community that you find yourself and you know your place, but that also can have, that's, that can also be part of the hell, you know, mm. where it's harder to break out. Um, so I think she, she was just reflecting on how there's powerful things to be learned in both places. Yeah. Mm. Technology, we've always been kind of Luddites. Our kids hate us for this. And so that's, <laughs> that wouldn't have changed whether we were here or there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. doesn't matter where you were. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Just wanted to ask that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you you talk in the in the documentary. So the documentary we're talking to, we've referred to, uh, it's called Godspeed, and it's sort of telling that story of your experience there. Um, and you mentioned this this man called Alan Torrance who opened up to Christ because of a map. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So Alan was one of the people I got to know just knocking on doors. Uh, Alan's a father of six kids. His wife is the cook at the local high school, and as an evangelist knocking on his door, I got to the point where I said, do you want to read the Bible together? Which he basically said no, but then we eventually did. And after a few times of reading in a style called Lectio Visio, in which you visualize the text, Mm -hmm. I noticed that Alan was able to memorize things upon hearing it once because he could see it. And eventually he said, I need to see the scale of where Jesus worked. And that's because he had assumed that Jesus worked in big cities or in places that were anonymous, maybe like a traveling televangelist today who does something somewhere, you're not sure who's healed, he moves on. Um, And so when Alan looked at the back of my simple NIV Bible at the map and saw the scale of Nazareth and the adjoining towns being so close, he basically said, I now know it's not a conspiracy. There's no way Jesus could maintain the claims he made for healing people's kids. He said, you know, he did that in our village and it's a lie. We're going to kill him. Um, You're you're blaspheming God and you're betraying trust. So that move to the small scale was the best apologetic for explaining what Jesus was doing Uh in ways that were unbelievably accountable back in the day that we can escape nowadays. Mm -hmm. So that was his aha moment looking at a map more than hearing any explanation i could ever give yeah right isn't that freaking amazing (laughs) it's it's good yeah and that's a lot of what we learned by just doing ministry in one small parish yeah Uh um it wasn't the amount of people we could get to church it was the quality of of the engagement mm-hmm. it was the fact that we had people who were from all denominations who just had to go to their local church mm-hmm. some were catholics some were orthodox some you know all the different protestant denominations um anybody who believed anything wandered into our church and anybody who wanted to believe found themselves you know slowly mm-hmm. coming closer and closer and mm-hmm. and so it taught us that that very small model small scale model um Jesus is um, the way that Matt and I taught and lived Jesus and the way we equipped our tiny little congregation to live Jesus with 
we still kept the same 80 year old organist who played five hymns. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we, we didn't change anything in the service because that would have disrupted 250 years. Well, actually, I don't know, 1500 years of this mm. church that had been there since 400s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but they had a very specific liturgy. And, you know, it, it sometimes I felt like, how can anyone feel God here? But they did. And they mm. came to Christ in this old church. And it, of course, it makes you really have to believe in the Holy Spirit. Right. And it makes you have yeah. to pray before yeah. church. And you're like, wow, this really isn't about us. So the the blessing of this tiny church took us really out of the picture um, because we had to go by all the, the church norms. And mm-hmm. Matt arrived with 24 elders who, because you're an elder for life. So if someone had been nominated an elder in their 20s for mm-hmm. being a good citizen, you know, 60 years ago, they were still an elder. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we, we just, we, we had to work with what we had. And then that. Um, and they were awesome. Yeah. Um, and didn't have some of the training we had or some of the cool songs, but they were known by the community and trusted. And that oh. trust was so strong. Mm-hmm. That's what Alan Torrance got in the map. He's like, wait, Jesus was a part of one of these communities. I trust him. You can't, mm. you can't exist in a place like that and keep being promoted, trusted, uh-huh. if you betray trust even once. Right. So that level of trust, I believe, is one reason Jesus came when he did and walked in a certain place uh-huh. and functioned in a small area. Because the biggest way to impact the world is to be trusted by a few mm. in the most powerful ways of all. And of course, in the New Testament, our faith in Jesus is this bedrock, but Think of faith as trusting a person you know. And people trusted him so much, even though he taught things that were mm-hmm. strange, mm. that that trust exploded and was passed on through his disciples and others. And that's, that's what I bore witness to, even mm-hmm. in the 21st century in a village. It was, mm-hmm. it was mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, so, and those, so those elders are really living in this, this idea of having deep roots in one place, which you talk about as establitus. Is that, is that how we say it? Um, that whole idea of remaining in one place. Talk to us a little bit about that, the, the depth, yeah, the, the importance of being rooted in one place and how you manage that in a, in a place where there's a desire for things that are new. You've sort of talked about that, but is there more that you can say about that? Um, yeah, I think I would. So shortly after coming back to the States, well, I, I just couldn't believe how I could see the culture differently when I came back and this addiction to novelty Mm. and bigger Mm. and better and newer. And I began to look at peruse my friends' books that they were reading, my Christian friends and like, wow, this is, you know, this isn't just on the billboards. This is also every Christian book was having these late, you know, radical, um, Mm -hmm. You know, all, all the, I can't remember all the different titles, yeah. but they were all, you know, ex, you know, over the top and sold out. And, and yeah. I just thought, wow, like this language had become foreign to me. So I could see it again for what it was. And so returning to the States, um, one thing we've been talking a lot about in our church is just the value of the ordinary. This is where you live out your faith. We, we try and tell people in our church um, being ordinary in your ordinary home and relationship in your little parish that you, you know, your, your concentric circle where you live, 
that is your discipleship. If you are living in Christ in these ordinary ways, that is so radical because you're not um, constantly chasing the new. You're not constantly mm. trying to mm. go to the next conference. You're you're going deeper with what you have and you're not spreading yourself out so thin. So that's something we've been trying to pastorally teach. Mm. Yeah. And, it, and it's just, it's easy to get, get distracted. There's so many amazing Christian things happening in America. There's so many more opportunities here mm. for discipleship, but I find that the, I wouldn't say the quality is any better. Mm. Um, and so, yes, there is, there is good things for us, but I think we can, um, you know, it's, it's choosing to do the one thing well, that's the hardest. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's no accident. God's first question is, where are you? Um, I really believe he was trying to help us be in a given place and be found by him right where we are. And had Adam and Eve answered, here I am. Mm-hmm. Um, the fall might not have been quite so well, the fall was what it is, but I believe that that's what was happening in that question. Mm, and today mm. people can't answer, here I am. They can only talk about where they're going or what they wish they were doing or mm. the lack of stability. Um, so next year is leap year. And on February 29, this extra day that we're given next year, this day of mm. grace, uh, in our parish, we're going to begin 40 days of slowing down. So leap ahead by slowing down and walking for 15 minutes a day, Mm. answering God's question, where are you with here I am, Uh, here I am at work, Uh, here I am changing the diapers, here I am fighting with my spouse, all these here I am's for Mm. 40 days and leap day happens to begin the night before the first day of Lent. Mm -hmm. So Uh it's a whole journey of being in Lent, moving towards Easter and resurrection, but facing the places we live. And I'm excited about this because it's the first book that we've done since. You didn't say it was a book. Oh, I didn't say it was a book. This is also a book. Tell us more. (laughs) (laughs) It's something Matt's been working on for years for our church. He's been trying to help people both match where they live with the biblical narrative of finding ourselves as God's child. And that's, mm. that's the narrative from Genesis to Revelation is God saying, where are you? And all of us avoiding, avoiding, avoiding. Mm. And, um, mm. and so this chasing God who finds us, and you can talk more about that, Matt is trying to map, map that narrative onto our local landscape here in Wenatchee, helping people get out every day for 40 days as they're walking through this biblical pilgrimage, doing a local pilgrimage. Mm. He's been working with a version of this every year with our church such that finally he said, I really want to, I really want to write this down. So we've had little mini books, you know, Microsoft Word, but this year we're actually going to publish something for Mm. people to do um, and have, be able to follow. So Mm. why don't you talk, I don't know what you want to say. It just continues from that, where are you question? And, you know, the first people who answer here I am are Abraham and then Mm. Jacob and then Moses, and then David, and then Isaiah, all these Hineni in Hebrew, here I am statements of people discovering stabilitas, stability, and answering God's call. But nobody answers the call fully enough, and none of us can. And all of this is, of course, anticipating Christ. But even before Christ, one Old Testament person who says the deepest here I am of all, can you think of who that is? 
Oh, I'm thinking Samuel. Samuel is another one. Very good. But it is a person between the Old and the New Testament. And I asked it a bit tricky. It's Mary. Right. Mary says, oh, here I am, Lord. the servant of the Lord. Yeah. And now she is giving this response, which is actually allowing God to incarnate himself in her and now become the here I am mm. on behalf of humanity to answer the question God first asked, not just with an answer in words, but a whole life lived in a given locale, mm. in a given woman's belly, mm-hmm. in a given village, on a cross, in a grave. All these here I am statements God now makes on our behalf, even in his baptism, so that the searching question God asks is now answered and lived out in Jesus. And so now participating in him, we can live the life God first intended us to live. And so that's the biblical arc it'll follow, Mm. but it's also a local pilgrimage. It's called a pilgrimage in your own backyard. Be found where you already are. There is no greener grass. Mm. Mm -hmm. And as Eugene put it, unearthing the holy ground beneath our feet. Yeah. Well, that's why people walk every day, read one verse, walk their favorite path, shop the local store, get to know their neighborhood and be found where they already are. Here I am. Yeah. Throughout the documentary, you use the word walking and running, walking and running. And you especially you start with in the documentary saying that you've been running your whole life. And sometimes the question is, Running towards what or running from what? Yes, running is anytime I'm driven by my own ambitions or sins from something towards green grass that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that it covers a, a multitude of sins and addictions. That's running. Walking is what Jeremiah 6.16 is trying to tell us when the runner, if you will, is told to stand at the crossroads and look, Uh ask for the ancient path, ask where the good way is. And here it is, walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Mm. That's the crossroads every person faces. And A, we don't stand and look. We don't consider the fork in the road. And I really believe this is the path Jesus invites us to walk in the spirit in a given parish to know him and be known. And in this walking speed at three miles per hour, we get to know God and ourselves and our neighbor so we can live out what Jesus said, love God and your neighbor as yourself. But you can't do that on the run. Um, You are driven by sins and ambitions that destroy you and destroy others. So that's why you see walking throughout the whole of the Bible as the metaphor Uh for walk with me, know Mm. me. Mm -hmm. That's why Alan Torrance Mm. figured out, wait, Jesus walked in this given area. Oh, I trust him. So that's the significance of walking, not running. Mm-hmm. And there is a time to run. I don't want to say that God's speed means just slow down, you'll be fine. Mm. There's a time to run and to walk and to soar. But for the most part today, we're not walking enough. So I just want to introduce that back into our regular habit of being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- there's a running for the wrong reasons, right? Because C- you were talking about about people running because they don't. They're somehow they don't know they they are scared of being known, really. And and I know I know that this term of being being known sometimes it's used in theological, uh, you know, in theological schools, some, in some churches, but it, it's not it's not it's not something I heard. 
outside church of being known. So so when I came to region, the, the, the term being known was, huh, it sounds theologic-y, you know, <laughs> it was nice and... Theologic-y, and that's theologic-y. a nice word. Let's bring, let's yeah, bring that into the English language. I like that. Right? It sounds smart, but then I started thinking, <laughs> you know, being known, being known. And then actually your documentary really helped me understand or get a grasp of really what being known and how much of an issue that can be and how scary that can be of just just shutting people out because you know I, I want my space I don't and and somehow is a is a it's a fear we don't realize we have and, and it, it can get scary so could you talk about that yes um there's many reasons we don't want to be known largely because there's a lot to know about us that's not very likable or lovable and so the risk of being known invites people into that. Um, I think this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13, when he talks about one day we shall be fully known mm-hmm. and we shall seek face to face. So that's the trajectory God wants us on. And running is all about avoiding that being known. Mm. So why am I afraid of being known? Um, because then once people know me as I really am, um, a, they will see my sins. Um, B, they may not give the grace I hope for. And if I can switch to marriage as a great way to be known, which is also a great risk and scary thing, mm. um, there's nothing more powerful than either in a marriage or a deep friendship, being seen and being known, and not just tolerated, but forgiven mm. and transformed and changed. Mm. So I'm not saying just know me and put up with me. Yeah. That would not be good for me. I'm saying, know me and give me grace where I need it and give me challenge where I need it. And then if you have a good friend, as I do in Julie and others, this process of being known is both a receiving of grace and a lovely ironing, sharpening of iron. So I'm not stuck with myself in my old and sinful nature. So I think people actually are afraid of being known because they don't realize the freedom they will find in actually being known mm. by someone who is trustworthy, mm-hmm. which is first of all, God, and then serious Christians who take the way he teaches about love seriously and can be trusted. But because that's been broken often, people are not going to risk it. And mm. I understand that pain, not from personal experience. I was very gifted growing up with trust, mm-hmm. um, but that's hard to reestablish once it's broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking, it's it's terrifying to stand in front of a person that knows everything you've done. It's like, I just want to think you don't know, even if you do, I just... I just want to just get take my head somewhere else. I don't want to. I don't want to even think you actually know, and and but like knowing that you know, being in a in a in a room with a with a, with a door closed is like face to face. You know everything I've done. It feels it, somehow terrible. Like just just stop looking at me. Just <laughs> you know what I've done, and like just. And, and I, I even imagine standing, <laughs> some people find it terrifying just one day standing in front of God and he knows everything you've done. And if, and if you haven't handled that forgiveness issue of you standing in front of the holy God, he knows everything you've done and you just want to get inside a hole and just, just for that moment to be over. 
you, you know, you know, so it can be terrifying, especially if you have those, if you think you're fooling people and you have so many secrets. And I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, that feeling of. Oh, I do. But I, I've been fortunate. I've, I've been practicing for so long being naked before God and others that now it's not a place of fear. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been practicing for judgment day every day yeah. <laughs> in my friendships. And, and instead of that, no, you finally see me. It's like, I have been seen and not just forgiven, but uh-huh. embraced and loved. So that's what being in one place or one relationship yeah. does over time. You practice judgment day. And instead of being condemned and tossed out, you're given grace and love and change. So yeah, we got to practice being naked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. So it, it, it is something you practice. It yes. is something you practice. Yes. Okay. So you want to know how we're practicing it right now? Yeah. Yes. Um, it, I think it's very hard for pastors to be known. Mm. Um, oh, it's got to be the, the worst thing. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just hard. It's because it's hard for them to, to get that brutally honest with people. Mm. They usually have people from seminary that they live far away from that they can call up or talk right. to. But we, we got dragged into this amazing marriage group by three other couples in our church, parishioners. Mm. And, um, and they just said, yeah, we think, we think you should be in our group with us. And we thought, okay, you know, we kind of like blindly went into this group and it has been the most wonderful, brutal being known by people uh-huh. in, in the depths of our marriages, because that's really, we, you know, we have a marriage counselor who helps us from time to time, but there's something about being known by other couples in the places where you're struggling the most in your marriage Mm. and fighting in front of them or, you know, sharing what's really been hurtful with them and having them ask you questions, them, you know, pull it out of you, them tell you, actually, I think you totally misunderstood. And I think you were wrong. And have you asked have you asked for his forgiveness? Uh-huh. You know, it's very, um, it's a very raw, great group. And it is, it's a, it's a, such a huge gift of being known by people, but you uh-huh. really like, we would often prefer to skip it, but <laughs> <laughs> o- only at first, not anymore, which, which is the point you're making. Yeah. Forget the parish and the greener grass of some idyllic thing. Uh-huh. Just find a good friend's who know you that that's that's how this happens and that can happen anywhere anywhere you already live to get back the idea of a pilgrimage to where you already belong just find people who know and see you yeah. and help you practice this don't mm-hmm. don't travel commit to friendships mm-hmm. yeah i remember i i, I gave a, a small step towards that like four months ago not going to go into details but like only my wife knew something and not even my best friend did so i i uh you know i called him and told him this happened to me because i was one of the feelings that i hate the most is when people act condescending towards me oh i hate that feeling because it puts you on top of me maybe i'm so proud i just can't handle that feeling so i was like (laughs) I don't want my best friend to go full on condescending on me and, and lose that, you know, we're equals, but not like, oh, did that really happen? Oh, I'm so sorry, man, poor. I was like, and, I mean, he he didn't do that. So it, it was just, just a, an imagined fear that I had. But but I think I think it's, it's feelings like that that you want to avoid. If it's like, wait, right now we're equal. If I somehow say something what of what happened to me or what I've done with all of a sudden this 
changes the Somehow, dynamic. Even or the fake playing equality field. is going to be ruined because all of a sudden I'm 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 worse than you actually. You know, I've done worse things than you or worse things happen to me or it's, it's, you know stuff like sometimes you don't want to jeopardize not jeopardize the wrong word ruin friendships which most yeah, likely you won't. Yeah, it's yeah, just think, a fear yeah. you keep feeding yourself yeah. in order of in order not to put yourself out there and practice what you were saying being known. Right? You got it. <laughs> Nailed it, Octavia. Good job. <laughs> it's a small step. Yeah, it's just small. But I do, I think it's that the, the beauty of the being known is the movement toward transformation. As you say, it's the receiving grace. And it's the, it's not just know me and accept me and let me just be kind of like just out there and remain in those areas of brokenness, but actually that place of transformation. But God um, is hard. Oh, man. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Um, yeah. No, that's it, Claire. It's not just, I mean, I'd have a lame marriage if all I said was tolerate me, baby. Tolerate <laughs> me. Um, that, would, that would be bad in so many ways. It's love me. Mm-hmm. And that involves the giving of grace. Yeah. Just one last thing to finish because we're running out of time. So every time I finish watching the film and you finish with, with you guys moving back to the U.S. as an epilogue, right? Moving back to the U.S. And then like trying to practice this slowing down and, and you, you, we can see you walk in and knocking on doors. So my, I always wonder, oh man, how did that translate in the U.S.? Did they do it? Did they finally gave up and it didn't work? So, so th- that's kind of my last question. Did it translate? Was that even was that possible? Or is it translating? Yeah, maybe? in the US, is it in so process? slowing down what you learn. I've got great news. It is translating. Oh, it's not because I'm knocking on doors, and in that sense, the film is misleading. I don't knock on doors anymore in America. There are dogs and no trespassing signs, <laughs> and, guns. and I'm not everybody's minister. But I do shop at the same grocery store, Plaza Superjet. I do go to the YMCA three times a week to play ball. Uh-huh. Um, my kids are all out of school where I'm getting to know everybody. You translate in a different way and uh-huh. just make decisions according to your terrain. So, no, it doesn't translate exactly. But just like any language, you find mm. the word you're speaking in and you can live it. Mm. Mm. But I would even say our marriage group is making us translate it even more. Like mm. that. Very oh. intentional community on Monday nights. Um, yeah, that bit of better ending the film. Don't have me knocking on a door, impressing some stranger if I'm nice <laughs> or disappointing them if I'm not. Land me in the marriage group um, yeah. every Monday night with Julie and like in this video, seeing us live and in relationship because that's actually where you learn who a person is. Yeah. And in that way, the film's also misleading because solo in front of a door for a few minutes I could trick somebody and pretend to do a miracle and be lying. But in marriage group Monday night, yeah. no way. <laughs> Not so no much. lying, baby. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Julie, did you want to say anything else around that, that translating piece for you? Uh, I think like Matt, it has been just going deeper. Being abroad was wonderful. Being an academic and then being you know, in these small villages – They were amazing experiences that did transform us. But I think where Trinitarian theology really calls us is, um, and I want to just circle back to knowing and being known, not just by your congregation, not just going to a smaller church, but the risk um, of giving yourself to another, giving yourself Mm -hmm. to your family, letting your 
kids have a say in how they think your marriage is going, having your friends have a say um, in how your marriage is affecting your pastoral ministry, those really vulnerable blind spots that we can't really, um, we just can't see about ourselves. It's in those places that I think our growth Mm -hmm. is happening the most. And I would say that has been the fullest um, circling of, of my theology, thinking of this God who wants to know me, um, who continues to model and, and engage in deep vulnerability with me, offering himself constantly. You can actually, as a pastor's wife, pastor, academic, not go there with him. You can keep mm. God as an idea. You can keep, keep, keep running. Yeah, you can mm. keep running, even with Trinitarian theology. And it's, it is only people that will make it real. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I just, I'm so thankful that the only way God has really given us to experience him is in the church and in other people. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, that is, that is something accessible to all of us, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but that is the scariest adventure of, of all. Yeah. 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 So as we finish, I was going to say, that's a great place to finish. What's, what, yeah, what, what, yeah. what do you mean? As we finish, that yeah. was it. That was going to be the ding. I'm going to ruin it a little bit. Oh, okay. Julie, let us know what you have going on. And then Matt, let us know what you have going on so people can know where to find you, where to, where to read what you're doing. Or to not find you on and that, to not yeah. interrupt your <laughs> lovely, quiet life. We live in Wenatchee. That's where you can find us. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We're... Um, we, as of two years ago, I've said no to most speaking things just so I could be focused at home and on the marriage. And that's been a wonderful two years of just uh-huh. laying low. Uh, and again, letting the theology confront the person. Mm-hmm. So that's been the last couple of years. I do a, a few teaching things at Whitworth, um, which is in Spokane. And mostly I just, this year ahead of me, I want to just read theology and figure out where to go with it next. So I'm excited. Nice. Great. Um, And also with Godspeed, we now have a lot of churches who are participating in the Godspeed um, study guide. Yeah. Small groups. So that's something we've been working on. And then, yeah, in February, in fact, sooner, I'll release the Godspeed pilgrimage, uh, 40 days to become God's child again. Okay, great. Julie and Matt, thank you for your time. Thanks for, uh, thanks for your honesty. Thanks for your thoughts. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be with you guys. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit regent.net. That's R-G-N-T dot net. <laughs>